millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You can't turn on the TV anymore without seeing gambling ads, particularly when there's live sports at play. This is a huge industry and... I think it's primarily targeted more at men. Uh, We'll let our guest today talk more about that though, but I just wanted to do this episode today with Jono. He's our resident psychologist. He's been on the show before. He's talked about gambling before, and I just think it's a good PSA to do these types of episodes. And I want you to kind of listen two ways. Number one, if you are struggling with gambling yourself and we can um, maybe define what an addiction is and two maybe there is someone in your life that may have a gambling problem and may need some help and maybe you can learn uh, from this episode how to uh, be close to that person if they're in the same household or if it's a friend or loved one uh, in your life but everything today is about gambling and uh, the psychology of gambling will also read some comments from the Facebook group and we'll see where we can uh, leave with that. Before we get into this episode, I want to thank Global X, our show partner to my millennial money. You'll hear a bit about Global X every single Thursday. We're so thankful for show partners because they help bring the show to you. So Global X, they provide ETFs. They're domiciled in Australia, which is really important. Global X is formerly ETF Securities and They've got a variety of different thematic ETFs that you can add to your investment portfolio. To learn more, you can head to globalxetfs.com.au. So my guest today, Jono, you ready to have a chat today, John? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. No worries. Well, let's get into it. So Jono, welcome back to the podcast. Just to um, paint the scene... Uh, you're a psychologist, you work in the trauma space at the moment, but you have had lots of experience dealing with gambling addiction in its own right. Yeah, so psychologist for 10 years now, um, primarily working with trauma, so early career kids in foster care, um, and then moving to adults with PTSD, complex PTSD, now working with veterans uh, solely, exclusively, or veterans and their families. In that time, though, I've worked as the gambling help uh, psychologist for North Queensland. So I see a lot of gambling and addiction issues related to the trauma. Mm. I was going to say because, you know, if someone is going through some trauma, the gambling could be an outlet and a refuge, right, that is linked up into that. Yeah. Gambling or any addictive behaviour can act as a bit of a self a self-soother. Mm. So to soothe distress and pain or what we would call hyperarousal. Hyperarousal meaning your physical state, you know, your, your nervous system is activated, all right, to a distressing degree. And so people will use addictions as a, as a way to calm that down. Yeah. So trauma, we'll find comorbidities with gambling and trauma pretty significant. Wow. Well, let's start with some 101 type questions. 
Can you explain how the brain responds to gambling and why it can lead to addiction? Yeah. To understand any addiction in terms of neurobiology, you need to understand the dopamine system. So the dopamine system, there's an area in the brain called the nucleus accumbens, which is kind of like this reward center, this dopamine center. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter. And look, try not to get too in the weeds because you can get really in depth with this, but a neurotransmitter is this chemical signal between two brain cells and brain cells are called neurons. And they don't actually touch these two brain cells, but they kind of connect and there's a little gap between the two cells. An electrical impulse coming from one cell to travel along the pathway to the next cell, the uh, electrical impulse converts to a chemical called a neurotransmitter. The next cell in the chain kind of sucks it up and continues the impulse. Mm. One of those neurotransmitters is called dopamine. And dopamine is really associated with uh, motivation to pursue a rewarding thing. Mm. Okay, so anything that's super rewarding. And from an evolutionary standpoint, it's really tied into pro-survivability behaviours. So think searching for food, water, shelter, mating, all right? That's kind of where our hardware evolved with these behaviours and dopamine would be released. Imagine sort of uh, maybe you need to find shelter. Like think way back in the day, all right, there's a storm coming, we need to find shelter. That energy, that motivation to get up and start walking, that's dopamine. Would you say, you know, we're talking about gambling and addiction and you're saying it's tapping into these neurological pathways. Could you say that any addiction just uses the same framework? So, you know, insert gambling here, insert food, insert chocolate, insert ice cream, insert sex, insert drugs. Like it's actually the problem isn't the problem, quote unquote. Yeah, it's, it's exactly right. It's the same hardware, yeah. right? So the nuclear succumbens, everyone has mm -hmm. one. I guess there's some people that might have a, a sort of localized injury or yeah. a lesion, but everyone has one. And, you know, whatever the addictive behavior or substance is, it's activating on the same circuitry. So the problem is we have this evolutionary tie into dopamine behaviors being pro-survivability, but now we are surrounded by activities and things that jack that up to a degree we have not seen before, mm. ever. Is that similar to, I guess, the triggers of anxiety? Like a good bit of anxiety is good. Like, oh, there's a mm -hmm. truck coming, oh, I better get off the road. Or there's a line coming, I better run because I don't want to get eaten or whatever. It's the same triggers that we might get in everyday things. Like I feel the same thing when an email comes in, <laughs> that it's triggering the same, yeah. it's triggering the same hardware that is just so innate in humans. It, that's such a relevant point. Like our hardware, evolution takes a very long time, right? But our technology surpassed evolution. So we've got old hardware, right? So there's a structure in the brain called the amygdala and the amygdala is a tiny little structure you've got on, on both hemispheres and that responds to threat. So it, it processes fear and threat response, okay? So if I'm out in the savannah and I'm hunting and I stumble across, you know, a lion, that amygdala is going to fire off, right? And that's going to enter the fight or flight response mm. or freeze, fight, flight, freeze. But the same thing's going to happen when I get a phone call. These days you get kids that, you know, a phone call does it. They're not used to that. They're used to this text, right? Yeah. So fight or flight is triggering to the modern world 
with ancient, or not ancient, but, you know, um, old hardware. Yeah, wow. So back to, you know, in a clinical setting with gambling or insert addiction here, how do you evaluate a patient who is struggling with gambling or an addiction to determine the best course of treatment? So what's kind of the roadmap that you would use? The first thing we need to do is we need to assess what's going on for the person. So someone walks into my office, come in, take a seat on the couch. What's brought you in to see me today? Right, open, right? It could be addictions, right? Let's say addictions are in there, but that's not going to be the whole story. And just because addiction is there doesn't mean the addiction story is the same for every person. They're nuanced. You've got to tailor your treatment to the person in front of you. Mm -hmm. So we'll do what's called a formulation. In a formulation, we take in clinical interview data, observational data, and then psychometrics, which are those questionnaires, tick and flicks, right? And we're assessing, putting all that together to assess what the issue is, how severe the issue is, how much impact is it having on your daily functioning. That formulation process will give us targets, right? What we call perpetuating factors. And that could be poor social supports, poor coping skills, poor arousal management. It could be distorted beliefs about the self and the world. Mm. And it'll give us this idea if we target those perpetuating factors, then we're going to give them the best probability of recovery from whatever illness they're experiencing. Mm. This is a wild analogy, but I've used it uh, in personal finance for some time now and go with me, everyone. Like someone gets fixated, and I'll use an example. Someone gets fixated on wanting to renovate the house, spend $400,000 and do all this stuff. But sometimes we just need to scratch the itch and maybe repaint the bathroom. Do you get what I'm saying? Like a lot of the time people will get the same feeling of contentment and achievement by spending a small amount of money on what they wanted to do as opposed to doing a wholesale house renovation. Mm. It's that gratification, right? So a lot of people have these huge grandiose goals of that's going to make me happy or that's going to give me satisfaction, right? In, in the context of gambling, I just got to win that jackpot and then I'm good, good as gold. And we know that, or A, you won't be. The gambling addiction has nothing to do with the wins, really. Um, but having small achievable goals or, or process goals is, is, can achieve the same satisfaction with, without the harm attached to it. Yeah, because it's, it's weird, this whole dopamine thing, right? Like for me, like I've played pokies before, a lot of people have, the joy that you get out of it is while it's spinning on the what if it wins, not the actual, like you, you kind of have this cliff of, you know, your yeah. excitement drops once the wheels stop spinning. It's like, oh, it's over. Oh, I, and yeah. <laughs> whether you know it or not, Glenn, you've t- touched on something that's so important. This dopamine, everyone thinks dopamine's like, oh, I get this dopamine hit because something cool happened or I got, you know, whatever it is that targets dopamine. Dopamine is the anticipation of reward, not the reward. Yeah. My brain is constantly making predictions about the future, right? And pokey machines are the best example of this because it taps into our innate pattern recognition hardware and falsely triggers it. So imagine pokies reeling off, you have to get a jackpot, 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 whatever the feature sort of symbol is and you'll get the jackpot the jackpot the jackpot and you'll miss 
and the pokies are insidious and I'm going to go down this rabbit hole. Do it. And come along with me, man. Yeah. So when the jackpot symbol hits, you'll hear a sound. Then the next one hits, you'll hear another sound and it'll follow the major key. So all the musicians out there, they'll know the major key, which is a happy sounding uh, sequence of notes. Mm. When one is missing, dun, 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 it leaves the nervous system begging for resolution. And what is the resolution? I'll play again. So, okay, so interesting. So some pokies, well, probably all of them, I haven't played every single one, like the feature thing, you need like the three things and it will mm-hmm. come down, ding, ding, nothing. It's like, ah, oh, I was so close to getting that third ding. <laughs> and what it, what it, and this is expertly designed, by the way, like mathematicians, psychologists design these machines mm. for addiction purposes. So it misses that last ding, that last kind of, and you're left wanting, right? What it does to our brain, which is an expert at picking up patterns, it says, all right, I've missed one. That means logically next time it'll hit. And it's called a near miss, Mm. right? A near miss is a programmed into pokey machines. They're programmed in. So a pokey machine, you take all the bells and whistles away, what's left? Excel spreadsheet with a random number generator, right? So anyone listening, it's probably good to pause here if you do have a problem with gambling. Like I wouldn't feel any shame because a lot of this stuff and different things in our life, Jono, you can probably speak to this, that, you know, we can't control our physiological makeup. And, you know, I don't have problems, for example, with uh, drinking alcohol or anything like that. So I don't understand what someone's going through addicted to um alcohol or gambling, but I don't think there's any shame in any addiction because we all are, you know, made up of all these different wiring and sometimes we can get tripped up um, in certain situations, right? Shame is um, one of the biggest factors with any addiction. Right. It keeps you in the loop. It keeps you in the cycle of addiction. And the reason is shame kind of keeps it secret, right? I don't want people to know my shame because then judgment is coming. Mm. And then people that are addicted to anything, what happens over time is this dopamine gets wired to only activate to one substance or behavior. Everything else becomes boring. It doesn't stimulate the dopamine system, right? You are what you repeat. Mm. And if you practice and repeat gambling, dopamine just becomes intimately wired with that. And so you hit this shame, which is, distress in the body but you've only got one method to soothe the body now so you go and gamble Mm. you go and drink you go and do whatever you eat a tub of ice cream right doesn't matter yeah i've i've had that struggle myself like same even um i talked i don't know if it was you last time but um like during COVID, i actually got a bit addicted to coke no sugar and it what happened was it it started that I would have one a week with my Friday night meal and COVID hit. I'm like, oh, you know, I'm a bit lonely or whatever. I'll buy a couple of the glass bottles because I'm a bit bougie. And then by the end of COVID, I was buying the 24 pack of cans and having one with lunch, one with dinner. And it wasn't that I woke up drinking two cans of Coke, no sugar a day. It's because it was just this 
little creepy things coming in a little bit more each time, a little bit more. And to the fact where I had to draw a line in the sand and go, look, I'm not doing this anymore. And weirdly enough, it's just fascinating. Uh, During the Christmas break, I probably hadn't had a Coke, no sugar for maybe eight or nine months, right? And Mm. I was at, you know, the whole, you know, that book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow by- I love that book. Yeah, I've got it on my book. Anyway, I'm not good at thinking fast, right? Anyway, I was at the line at a, a different restaurant or, you know, it was Rascal at Charlestown for anyone in Newcastle and I was with a friend and he was buying and I'm like, oh, I, I just get a Coke, no sugar. Like it just jumped out and mm. I couldn't drink more than half of it. Like I didn't even like the taste of it anymore. So anyway, <laughs> digressing. Isn't it, isn't it interesting there's a part of your brain that uh, in a pinch goes to what it knows. It's autopilot, yeah. right? Yeah, and that was that thinking fast, right? Yeah, so thinking fast generally is the source of this anxiety, depression, thinking fast, these thoughts that don't have logical in uh, basis, mm. but they're sort of the algorithm of our sort of subcortical brain, mm. right? In order for a thought to become automatic pilot, you have to repeat it. You know, the, the, the act of automation in the brain, it's a term called neuroplasticity, right? We learn from experience and then whatever is repeated or emotionally intense enough, we're going to learn real quick. You know, you've got to repeat it. Would you say that, some of this addiction stuff, half of it is more of the habit than the actual addiction itself, or are they just so intertwined you can't even distinguish? I mean, a, a ha- like what's the definition of a habit? A habit is something you do repeatedly but maybe doesn't cause as much harm as an addiction. Mm. I would just say it's an addiction. Yeah, okay. Right? Yeah. And then every addiction has its on the spectrum of, of impairment to functioning. Everyone has its own. Mm. Question, what if someone is living with someone or there's someone really close in their life and they think there's a problem with gambling? Uh, you know, and we can talk about some of the signs. I don't know if you know them. Um, mm. I could make some up, but I'm sure it would be like legitimately running out of money <laughs> during the week, needing mm-hmm. to borrow money, um, blatantly you know, being seen in the pokey room. I just want to talk for one moment, like what's the best course of action for someone who might be living with someone Mm. with a gambling addiction? If you're worried a loved one has a problem with gambling, you've got to have the conversation. The conversation, and there's an art form to these kind of conversations. Now, generally, without training and practice or guidance from a psychologist, people kind of have two approaches to tough conversations. One is the submit the self-sacrifice and no, I'm going to avoid that. That's too hard. Don't worry about it. It'll sort itself out. The other is coming in all guns blazing, right? And I'm, I'm all worked up and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to argue with you into your own submission. You know, you'll submit to my will. Now, both of these extremes aren't helpful. So you cut it down the middle. What have you got? This concept of empathic confrontation, empathic boundary setting, Right. So, Glenn, you know, if you're my loved one and I'm worried about you and your your um, gambling, I would set a time and a date. Glenn, there's something really important I want to speak to you about. When are you free? Can we do it Tuesday afternoon? Okay, we set a time and date. Mm. Good. Now, their anxiety is probably going to go through the roof at that, mm. but you can sort of mitigate that with some some certain things. During the conversation, I would say, Glenn, when you gamble. You're putting the finances at risk. 
you're doing this, that and the other. It makes me feel this, that and the other. What I need from you is a commitment to somehow reduce or stop. And I'm here to support you in whatever you need, but it has to move. Mm. We can't keep doing this. So it's, it's empathic, but it's also firm. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah. And I guess it's, it might be more nuanced if that is a, a spouse or partner that you're actually living with, right? Because mm. it's, you know, it might be hard to say, oh, we're going to talk next Tuesday. Um, mm. How would you do that? Like just some real talk, this is starting to affect me. Um, is this something you're willing to work on? Because, you know, you have been gambling for some time now and we can see that the results mean you can't win. <laughs> like, mm. We haven't seen any positive results. Like we could track of how much you've really spent don't. and the net loss. So this is actually going nowhere really fast. Can we put a plan in place? I don't know. Exactly that. The biggest thing is don't shy away from how anxiety provoking it is for you to have the conversation. Mm. If you're the loved one, it's really nerve wracking. You're like, how's this going to go? Are they going to blow up? Are they going to run away? Are they going to, you know, what's going to happen? And most people with addictions, they will want to avoid the real conversation too. So you've got two people that kind of want to avoid it. The biggest thing is to have your tone of voice neutral, your volume low, keep it low, right? There's no need to raise it. Say what you need to say and as firm as it is, but keep your speech calm. Here's a question, and I don't know if you've done much relationship counselling or it probably comes into it, eh? like if you've got someone who's a, a patient, they might bring their partner. Could you ever write out a letter and say, I'm, I've written this and I just want to read it to you now and then I'll give you it? Like, does, 100%. Does that help? Yeah. yeah. For some people that are really, really anxious at having that conversation, mm. you know, coming back to the point I made before, you are what you repeat, mm. you are what you practice. If doing a hard conversation is, is a new skill, practice it. Prime mm. your brain so the, the brain cells, the circuitry responsible for that hard conversation know what they're doing to some degree. Mm. You might not master it, but you can kind of rehearse it. Rehearsing it, writing a letter is kind of like rehearsing it. Yeah. You know, and if you can't say it, hand the letter over or read it. Uh, you probably know, Jono, we do this um, Spotify podcast, My Millennial Daily. Um, just last week, we, we batch record our Friday shows, which is the three of us. There's a question in there that, you know, the standard question that, this person had all these money problems with their partner and looking in, it was just, it wasn't a money problem. It was a relationship problem. I usually suggest to people in this situation, and I'll get you to speak to it as well uh, with the gambling lens and relationships and that. I think it's probably good if you suggest that, hey, maybe we can both go to a, a psychologist or a counsellor together. Let's do this together. And that if the answer's no, I think you should still go yourself to at least have someone to give you some structure to work with that person. Is that a fair comment? And you can yeah. say no if it... Absolutely. Um, couples counselling is interesting. They use something called Gottman's therapy, which is kind of like the gold standard where you'll have joint sessions then you'll split and have individual sessions and come back right. as, a, as a group. Um, if you are the spouse of someone that has a troubling behaviour that's causing impact, absolutely encourage it that your spouse goes and sees someone on their own because they need a little sanctuary themselves. Right, yes, yes. There's no judgment. Yes. All right, the person with the addiction needs sanctuary where shame is, is, is managed in a nurturing, warm 
way. Mm. And I think it's best, or well, not best, but you know, having your psychologist that you have a good relationship with is good to have as a sanctuary against the relationship itself, the, the spousal relationship. So we're talking about therapy. Like what role does it play in the treatment of the gambling addiction and how would you determine which type of therapy is best for a particular patient? Because there's obviously going to be different cases, right? Like, mm. you know, someone could be wholesale every payday, the money's gone and they're borrowing and stealing or it's this sports bet thing on the app where I'm doing it um, every single day, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, rather than a, a physical walking into a poker machine, uh, it could be mm. like everyone's got poker machines in their pockets now. Like this is wild. Yeah, so, access is such a problem. Yeah, so how do you break down the types of therapy for particular people? Every therapist has their own favourite right, like their own favourite modality. Mine is schema therapy and EMDR. EMDR is, is an acronym for eye movement desensitisation reprocessing. So, I mean, you don't need to know too much about that. But uh, it, each uh, therapist has their own Is that, okay, thing. just on that, because I, I went to a psychologist once and I was at kind of peak freakout mode and he got his pen and he was waving it and had to look at it for like 10 minutes or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. EMDR is... is Unreal. It mm. uses bilateral stimulation. So, you know, to follow my fingers as they go laterally across your field of vision, what it does is it activates the hemispheres of the brain sequentially. Right. It's used for trauma, but what it does is that bilateral stimulation, so running your eyes laterally uh, left and right, it suppresses the amygdala. It suppresses the, the activation of the amygdala. And we were talking about that before. Mm. The amygdala is threat detection. That can be social threat. That can be financial threat, physical threat. But that activates, triggers anxiety and fight or flight. So this act of BLS, bilateral stimulation, suppresses that. Mm. So it's a good tool. Wow. I think I've just admitted to everyone that I've been through some trauma. But, hey, we're all just human. everyone has, Glenn. Yeah. Every human, in, without deviating too much, mm. Every human has experienced trauma and my personal philosophy around this is that we are born, we're the only species that are born so underdeveloped, mm. right? We had to sacrifice that when we became bipedal. Mm. So the birth canal became really small. So we had to give birth to, to um, offspring when they're really underdeveloped. So the brain's not developed. So they're, when they're born, they're 100% helpless, mm. but also don't have the brain architecture to have theory of mind, so they're egocentric. So there's always these traumas, like if a parent doesn't respond to crying immediately, that can be considered a small t trauma, right? Life, childhood, you're going to accumulate some traumas. Everyone will. And trauma, you know, it could be so physical as in you're in a car crash or mm -hmm. you were a veteran and you've returned from a war, like, or, you know, DV, like actual trauma, but I believe trauma presents itself even with the soft thing, like you grew up living with a gambler or you grew up living mm. in a XYZ type of household. So, yeah, I think basically what you're saying is most uh, psychologists will have their own flavour and style, but rest assured there would be a customizable treatment program to work with the presenting trauma or person. Yeah, so if someone walks into my office, I would like I said before, get this formulation. So what is it that this person, why did this person start gambling? Why is he or she still gambling? 
what's their ability to soothe their arousal state in their body. Mm. So arousal just means the activation of the central nervous system. Find out what's keeping it going. In my experience, the, the, one of the best treatments is schema therapy. Um, it's this concept of, so there's these things called schema modes. And imagine parting yourself. There's a part of Glenn that wants to drink that Coke Zero. There's a part of Glenn that doesn't. Th- those two parts exist at the same time. One of them is And they're both work. right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so this, and this concept of like being in two minds, I want to quit gambling. I know how much harm it's causing, but it makes me feel better. It's the only thing that makes me feel better. And I'll just do this one more time and then I'm going to quit. Schema therapy kind of almost theatrically parts them out and we do this thing called empty chair work. Mm. So I'll I'll put the gambling part in one chair and the healthy adult part, which is what we call it, in another chair and facilitate a conversation between the two to the point where the healthy adult will win against the gambler. And then in that moment, you get a sensation in your body. You feel what it's like to win. Not logically know Mm. how bad it is for you or logically understand it, you know, it doesn't make sense. That's kind of largely irrelevant, but to feel victory over the, the addicted brain. So schema mode works really powerful. What are, what are some of the challenges um, that you have working with gamblers to achieve a long-term recovery? There's so many answers to this. Yeah, We can go individual level um, and then sort of zoom out. Individually, motivation is a fleeting physiological state. Right. Motivation is not the same day in, day out. So if someone rings my admin and then books a session the day after they've had a massive loss, motivation's high, mm-hmm. right? They're keen. I'm, I'm done with this behaviour. It's causing so much pain, right? A week later, two weeks later, once they get some distance from that negative event, is motivation going to be as high? Mm. Probably not. Mm. So one of the challenges is motivation fluctuates really quickly, Right, And so as a therapist, my job is to try and maintain motivation as much as I can. So there's techniques like motivational interviewing, which I'd employ in those moments. Mm. So there's that. There's individual challenges. There's, you know, whatever trauma background, there's that challenge. But there's also the challenge on a governmental level and a policy and legislation level. Mm. So I think New South Wales have tabled or trialling something now in terms of pokies, but... There's a lot of money being moved. There's a absolutely ruthless transfer of wealth, especially with pokies, the, the poor communities transferring their wealth over to venues, mm. to um, organisations like Clubs New South Wales, you know, big lobby groups, and then to government. So there's challenges everywhere. Another challenge is the advertising. Absolutely everywhere. Mm. Right? So we're up against it, kind of. You talked about... Uh, the motivation thing, right? I know, and I'm going to draw a parallel here. And again, please tell me if I'm in the wrong postcode or ballpark or whatever. But you think about people, they're like, oh, I'm not really a drinker, but they'll binge drink on a weekend and just horrendous, you know, binge or whatever. Um, And gambling could be the same. Like you're not a day-on-day gambler, but when you gamble, either if it's, once every few weeks with friends, you know, your pattern isn't this, oh, I do it daily and weekly, so it's not a problem. But when I go near the pokey room or I 
am with the friends and everyone's got their sports bet out, that's when I go too far. So I don't know if you want to talk to binging mm. or those types of things that I think what I'm saying is it's like a functioning alcoholic might not think they're an alcoholic because they're functioning, but it actually is mm. a problem. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's levels of severity, mm. right? So you can binge on gambling and then if you've, let's say you're going out with your mates and you haven't gambled in three weeks because you've stayed at home, mm. right? You don't have the apps on your phone. So you don't have these cues triggering your dopamine anticipation of reward to go out and search for gambling. Mm. But then when you're in the environment, you're at the pub, your mates are gambling, it triggers the system, right? So the biggest thing there to ask yourself is, can I stop? Can I, and when I try to stop, what happens in my body? Do I feel agitated? Do I feel distressed? So asking yourself, can I stop in that environment is a huge indicator for what's going on. So binging or, or daily use, you know, we, we tend to have this, this vision of like the addict mm. is in the street asking for money, doesn't have it. It's just not true. Yeah. Far out. Hey, with, um, all addiction and things that happen, particularly gambling. Talk to us about the thresholds that, you know, like a someone who's addicted to alcohol and the misuse of alcohol, their body might need more alcohol to get mm. drunk where I'll have a one shot and, you know, basically pass out because I don't drink. Um, mm. Do you want to have any comments around thresholds and that, I don't know, numbing that a $2 spin on the pokies doesn't do it anymore. I need to do, to do the $5 or something like that. Yeah, well, it comes back down to dopamine. Right, right. So you think of dopamine, we've got a natural baseline level of dopamine and then it sort of rises at, you know, pro-survivability uh, behaviours. As soon as you have a rise, there's got to be a fall mm. below baseline. Homeostasis needs to be maintained. So whatever goes up has to come down. Right. And so with tolerance, and we're talking about tolerance here, the level of dopamine spike at a $1 bet when you first start betting is high. As your brain gets used to that, because you've repeated the behavior over and over again on a $1 bet, the spike isn't as high. The crash below baseline gets higher. Gosh. Right. So you don't get enough of a or as much as a dopamine spike, but you get a huge crash. So you have to bet $5, $10. Same with alcohol. All right, six beers doesn't do it for me anymore. I'm going to mix tequila with this. And, you know, so your body gets used to a certain amount of stimulus that spikes dopamine. Mm. And then it just gets used to it over time. Yeah, I hope people listening are really encouraged. If You know, if you are listening and you do have a problem with gambling, I, I want this kind of discussion just to be a, no shame discussion and we're just talking facts and human chemicals and all that stuff. But we'll be back right after this break and we're going to read some real life comments from the Facebook group. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, Jono, we've touched on some uh, high-level stuff. There's a question. I'll read it all because it's actually, I think it's fascinating. Daniel writes, one, what actionable steps can an addicted gambler take to stop? If they are self-aware that they have a problem, they can afford it, but know they shouldn't be doing it because of the mental health issues it causes. I started gambling at 19 immediately after selling the first business I built. Uh, he's now 27. Lost 80% of the sale to gambling in a six-month period. That's over $250,000. Texas Hold'em at casinos and private games and have struggled ever since with the persistent thoughts and inability to stop. I've been to doctors, therapists, and the lot. Nothing has stuck. I have self-banned from sites, only to go to new ones and switch the type of gambling I do. It's my only vice. I don't drink, I don't do drugs, I don't do anything. Right now, I'm heavy into online casinos. He knows that he needs to stop, but the lack of ability to and have found no source of help. I mean, that's very complex and a lot going on there. I mean, if Daniel walked into your office, mm. like this is a bit of a case study for a psychology test. But like, I love it. It's, this is real and, you know, there's real money and real life at play here. It's complicated. Mm. There is, like I said before, you can have multiple thoughts at once. I want to stop, but, I, you know, I'm doing this, or, you know, that sort of thing. His addiction is prevalent and you know that through the preoccupation his cognitions are really preoccupied with, with gambling mm. and the level of effort he's going to to circumvent his self-exclusion efforts, right? So, all right, I'll shift to casinos rather than Texas Hold'em online or whatever. The biggest thing for him, actionable steps is what he said, is get a therapist you actually like, for one. Mm. Therapists, then we're not all just coming out of a factory and like, here you go, speak to this guy, speak to this guy. We have the same thing. You need to like the therapist. You need to have a positive relationship with them. So that, you know, put that to the side. He needs to master what is going on internally in his mind and in his body every time he's about to bet, has an urge to bet, while he's betting and after he's made a bet. And map, right, what's your heart rate? Do you have tension in your muscles, right? What's your breathing rate at? Okay, what are your thoughts? Oh, I can win this one. Or maybe if I just do that, what are your beliefs? What are your emotions, right? Map everything. Become an absolute master of what's going on internally for you before, during, and afterwards. Now, what we call that is a functional analysis. Often what you're going to find is that beforehand, you have a lot of anxiety, stress, or boredom. And boredom is just another form of 
pain, stress. Yeah. During it, you might find you feel relief, right? You feel, I don't have that pain anymore. Afterwards, maybe you feel relief again, or maybe it's shame because you had a loss. Once you can understand the physical and emotional drivers, then you can develop a plan to manage the withdrawal symptoms, which is what most people are trying to do. I place a bet or I have that cigarette Mm. because I don't want to feel withdrawals, right? Then from there, once you've really understood it, your internal state, what we call subjective units of distress, you know, rated out of 10, I'm a six out of 10, how distressed I am. Practice arousal management techniques, controlled breathing. Breathe out twice as long as you breathe in. What that does is it lowers your heart rate. So on the exhale, as you're exhaling, there's a shift in the chest cavity, right? It compresses, sends a signal to the brain. The brain recognizes that and goes lower the heart rate to compensate. So we are overriding some biological systems to lower the heart rate, which means lower arousal, lower stress. Now, if I become a master of managing my arousal, then I can ride the wave of an urge or withdrawal. Mm. Does that make sense? So before I kind of go on, there's one thing to, there's a caveat to this. There's no such thing as like this magic bullet. You're not going to do this once and oh, unreal, that worked. This is something you have to repeat. Remember, you are what you repeat. You have to train, you have to build your ability to tolerate this distress. I've got a couple of questions on this case study. Like someone who may be a, like I would say this is a very, very serious um, level of addiction. Mm. Um, you know, I've been to doctors, therapists a lot, but nothing has stuck. You know, I would say like, can there be a point where someone might not be actually ready and they've gone to therapists and docs because, you know, you can't push a rope. Those convinced against their will are of the same opinion still, all that stuff. Like you've got to get to an own, your own bedrock, right? But would you say like someone with a really acute, Dopamine. Well, it's a dopamine addiction, isn't it? Because they're operating mm-hmm. at a 10 out of 10 where most of us might sit at a, a 4 out of 10 in normal mm, life. Exactly. So, like, would that be, all right, you're going to have to go to therapy maybe once a week for eight weeks straight mm-hmm. and even use it as a pseudo accountability. <laughs> like, Yeah, and if he's, if he's in two minds, there's a gambling part that, that wants to gamble. He's not ready to give that up. There's a part that wants to give it up. My job as a therapist is, all right, well, gamble. Cool. Still come in though. Yeah. Right. We're not going to target gambling immediately. We're going to build a relationship. I want to make sure that you know me. I know you. We like each other. Yeah. So it's, it doesn't have to be all or nothing right on day one, does it? No. No. I mean, the big goal of quitting any addiction, that's way in the distance. Mm. Right now, let's figure out what the problem is, why it's there, why it's being maintained. And then I'll teach you arousal management strategies. I might need motivational interviewing skills to kind of boost that motivation a little bit, mm. right? Or self-efficacy. How much do you believe you can actually stop? And what do we need to boost that up? Do you ever work with um, people that, you know, I'm just fascinated with this stuff. Like, it's like, okay, well, you know you want to change. Let's build a roadmap together. Mm. I don't know. Like, do you say Therapy like, is so collaborative. Yeah, like, would you say, okay, so- we know that we think there's a gambling problem and if you are prepared to come in for the next few sessions or whatever, 
when would you like to stop gambling or is there a realistic time frame that you want to work to or I don't know like I guess I just want to encourage everyone that you know just making the first move and speaking mm. to someone is just build that relationship yeah yeah any final words for Daniel or someone who might be living with a Daniel or in the same situation before we move it on I think with with Daniel's comment I mean, you're losing a lot of money. You're preoccupied with with the thoughts of it. You're spending a lot of effort to find a way to gamble and you know it's a problem. I'm not giving you any new information here. What I would suggest is, to, like I said before, is map your body's responses to these triggers. Become a master. Know it so intimately, right? Get the help of a, of a therapist that you like, right? But then think about these parts. Try and have, and it sounds so weird, and it sounds a little bit bizarre, but sort of facilitating this conversation between the gambling part, even naming it, mm. right? Like, you know, if there's a, a alcoholic part, go Frank the Tank, all right? I've got a name for it. We him. can use the one on the Simpsons, Gambler. Gambler, yeah. <laughs> what a reference. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you can, if you name it, you externalize this thing from you, right? So this is a really cool technique, this tapping into your observational self, not your experiencing self. And there's subtle differences there. The experiencing self will have thoughts of, I cannot do this. I need to go to the pub. I need to gamble. I need to drink. Mm. I cannot do this, right? The observational self will notice that thought and go, I notice I had a thought that I cannot do this. It's very subtle. But that difference, that little bit of externalizing, a little bit of separation gives some autonomy back. Mm. It's just a thought. Yeah. There's a question here. Well, it's probably more of a comment from Wayne. I'm interested in why some people are more prone to addiction of any kind than others. There's a whole of a uh, whole range of variables mm. at play. With gambling in particular, you've got biological sex. So males, much more at risk. Uh, I think that's got something to do with higher impulsivity and risk-taking. Right. Age, so if you start betting at a young age, you're more likely to develop problem gambling later. Then you've got things like temperament and personality. Mm. So you might be high on impulsivity, high on sensation seeking. So some people have a natural sort of uptick to sensation seeking. Mm. They might have more dopamine receptors in postsynaptic neurons, which means they need that thrill seeking. Right, which is natural variation in evolution, which is a good thing. Have you seen any correlation between ADHD and gambling addiction or undiagnosed rather ADHD? Yeah, yeah. ADHD and dopamine are intimately linked. So ADHD has a, a lower baseline dopamine level, which means you need stimulation seeking. So some people will stim. So you've seen ADHD and it's sort of stimming, getting stimulation. A lot of uh, kids will really be into coke and lollies and stuff because it gives you that lifting mm. in dopamine. So your ability to have foresight as to consequences to whatever action I'm impulsively doing, right, comes from the prefrontal cortex. Mm. But someone in high impulsivity will struggle to foresee those consequences. Mm. Yeah, fascinating, right? Mm. Okay, Robbie. I've learned the gambler doesn't want to change as they may be very familiar to living with gambling in the family. Dad, associates and friends are all gamblers and think that it is normal. Is this their recreation 
Do they also think it's normal that the rest of the family falls in to cope with the lack of money, as this has been their experience? They often say they want to stop gambling, but they really only want to say stop for you to stop questioning them until the next time. For someone looking to be involved with the long term, I've found that the best policy is to get out early. While they can be very nice people, like an addict, they lie and cheat and are always blaming luck that they create themselves. And just another question, are we as parents doing what is right for our children? Your children are exposed to this. One parent is an addict and one becomes codependent. What are we teaching our children to accept? I mean, a lot there. I don't know if you want to just start talking about any, uh, yeah. anything that comes to mind with uh, Robbie's comment. There is a lot there. And what I hear in that comment is someone that's upset, mm. hurt. There's pain in that comment, pain from lived experience. And I think at the top of that comment, she mentioned the gambler doesn't want to change, but they'll give, they'll placate, they'll say what is meant to be said just to get out of the situation. And some of that's true. Right. I think in the last episode, we spoke about this idea of stages of change. Mm. You know, how ready are you to make this change? And we've got pre-contemplation, so I'm not thinking about it. Contemplation, I'm thinking about it. Preparation, I'm planning my quit date. Action, I've quit. Maintenance, I'm still quit. Then we've got lapse and relapse, right? So everyone's in a different stage of their readiness to change. What I would argue is that no matter who you are, there's probably some part of the gambler that knows this is bad, mm. right? How aware of that part they are or how tuned into that part, who knows, it changes person to person. Mm. So I've, I think, you know, they ha- there's a part of them that knows that does want to change. It's just how strong that part is. Do you think if someone's listening to this and they feel, I don't know, outraged at what we're saying, that could be, that could be a trigger that you do have a problem because we are talking about your gambling yeah. habits? I mean... The brain loves familiarity, mm. right? It hates change. Like if my, your beliefs are kind of pretty solid and any evidence that comes in that is contrary to our beliefs, our unconscious beliefs, we're experts at dismissing that. Mm. We would rather keep our beliefs in the face of contrary evidence than to change our beliefs in the face of evidence. That's every human. So some people might be might be triggered and go, what are they talking about? I can just have a slap on the pokies, it's fine. Mm. Maybe, but how much pain is it causing your wallet? How much pain is it causing in your relationships, mm. right? If you take inventory and really assess the different systems in your life and how they're impacted by your gambling, really take a, a solid, honest, raw inventory, then, then you can decide whether, you know, Jono's talking nonsense or not. Mm. But you've really got to be honest with yourself. And for some people, sure, they can do it quite fine without it causing harm. But for others, they can't. Mm. Yeah. And it's, how would you define like, I'm just thinking like, you know, the word recreation was in there. I mean, Mm. you know, if you're with a group of friends at a hen's night or buck's night and it's, you know, you might, oh, put $10 in the pokies, everyone's doing it. Like if it's once off, you probably don't have a gambling problem, right? But Absolutely. like, how do you how do you know that you are a, an addicted gambler? Well, there is a series of diagnostic criteria. So the psychologist and psychiatrist sort of bible for how to diagnose and how to assess. Right. It's called the DSM DSM five at the moment. Yep. Uh, the criteria are 
the tolerance. You need to gamble with more to get the same relief or excitement. So you're building a tolerance to the stimulus. And that was me with Coke, no sugar. Yeah, that's me with Oreo ice cream. Oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. Um, the next one is you're restless or irritable when you try to cut down. Mm. And that's the hyper arousal, the distress, the pain side of pleasure. So pleasure and pain, if you, if you hit the pleasure side, you're going to get a pain response later. If you hit the pain side, you're going to get a pleasure response later. It's like a seesaw. Um, preoccupied with your thoughts are preoccupied with gambling. You feel when you're distressed, you gamble to soothe yourself. Mm. You know, um, you chase your own losses. You've had a big loss and you think, okay, the shame, I don't want to tell anyone. I just need to win, get back to zero. You lie or conceal the extent of your gambling or your relationships, your occupational functioning, so you might jeopardize work or your relationships. And that's what we call this impairment in daily functioning. Mm. And it varies person to person, but these are clear examples of when it's starting to become a problem. Mm. Well, there you go. There's a bit of a self-check and we might even mm. make that as an Instagram rule. Like if you answer yes to some of these things, um, it could be a good time to seek help. Absolutely. Yeah. And Gambling Helpline is a great resource. Is that a national They've, line? Mm. Yeah, free call. They've got a website. They've got screening tools on there as well. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes, everyone, uh, for that. Uh, And we'll finish on this comment. It's anonymous. My father is a compulsive gambler and alcoholic. It completely destroyed our family when I was young and my relationship with him is not particularly close. I would love to hear about different addictions interact with each other, which someone else asked that. Also, how do they increase the risk factors for future generations Tips for interacting with family in this situation. It's easy to say things like choose venues that don't have pokies. But if I try to have dinner with my dad anywhere that isn't a pub, he just leaves as quickly as possible and goes to the pub after anyway, then gets angry if we don't go with him. I also feel if I have even one alcoholic beverage around him, it's an excuse for him just to keep drinking. I'm guessing this is more common scenario. Yeah, absolutely. I reckon. Is it better to refrain from drinking alcohol around him to help curb his behavior? We currently live at opposite ends of the country and if I travel to see him, it can all be a bit overwhelming. Uh, looking for any tips, making it less stressful. I mean, gosh, at what point do you say your drinking or your gambling has been a problem with me and it has affected our relationship so I can't spend more time with you particularly around mm-hmm. drinks or pokies or something? I mean, that's complex. Yeah, and how do you say that with compassion? Mm. Like I said before, we don't want to dive into these two poles of communication styles, being passive or being aggressive. We want assertiveness. So empathic confrontation is is really the key. You're well within your rights to say, hey, look, if I'm coming up for a visit, we're not going drinking, we're not going to the pub, right? But we have to have realistic expectations on the addicted person too, Okay. Maybe that means we go out for dinner one night, but then you have a night where you have to do what you need to do as well, right? But a raw conversation is needed. Um, I would probably, you know, put in a boundary of like, well, when I'm around, when we're out together, we don't drink. Mm. But that means our time is only two hours and you have to go do your thing. Because the addicted brain loves loopholes. Yes. Loves loopholes. And one of the the biggest ones is... um, Oh, I haven't had a bet in a week. Great, I'm good. I can go have a bet. Yeah, because I, I'm not addicted because yeah. I clearly didn't have to all week. I've just proved that I'm, mm. that I'm good. 
right? It loves little loopholes, these cognitive acrobatics, you know, to get you to do the thing. It's um, insidious that way. But when you're a loved one, I would say use empathic, compassionate boundary setting. Mm. Yeah, and I think I've learned this even, you know, with my team, not to anything to do with this, but, you know, we were talking, you know, about workplace and, you know, having, you know, if you've got to step away from the desk and all that. And I'm pretty much like, you've got to do what you need to do. That's fine. But don't let your chaos be someone else in the team's chaos. That's when I have a problem with it. So mm-hmm. how do we make sure in these situations with your parents that you don't live with or whatever, that, you know, their chaos doesn't have to be your chaos. I love that line. Yeah. And I learned that from Shell Johnson from my millennial <laughs> career. And, and yeah. that's it. Like I only have a problem as an employer if a team member does something that impacts another team member. Yeah. And I'm, I'm similar. I've, I've got a team that I manage and I like the idea of sort of personal accountability. Similar to what, what you said, one of my favorite sayings is other people's dysfunction is not your responsibility. Yeah. So, and this is tricky when it's a loved one. Mm. So we don't want to shoulder the burden of I need to get this person fixed. That's not your responsibility. You can lead the horse to water, right? It's your responsibility to support. You can offer support without shouldering the sole burden of I need to get this person fixed. It is on them, Mm. right? But you can do that with compassion because if we understand that shame is what keeps them in the addiction, compassion is the antidote. Mm. And it's probably fair to say like, you know, the trivial thing that I talked about, about the Coke, no sugar, or if it's ice cream or, you know, really serious like gambling stuff, everyone's going to have that hangover of regret. Mm-hmm. Like if I smash a pint of Ben and Jerry's, like I don't just keep it in my house anymore because I can't, like <laughs> I can't actually have two scoops. No, no it's so good too. Like, yeah. You know, and if I did smash a pint, I have the regret after it. Like everyone addicted to stuff, you're always going to have regret. Like there's this human element when no one's above anything because it's like, we're all wired that A plus B equals give me more C or I don't know, some weird analogy. But we all, we all feel shame in our life and, you know, you can reverse engineer shame. How were you taught to manage shame as a child? I'm not going to ask you personally, but the way we were taught to manage shame is really important. You know, so when I get in trouble as a kid and I'm mucking up and, I'm, you, you know, you're being bad, I've got shame, then the parent should come and repair that shame If that's missing, people are walking around with shame and they have no working models on how to manage it Mm. when it becomes really dysfunctional. So every human in the world is feeling shame at some point. What do you do to manage that physical manifestation of shame? Yeah, it's. I think in finishing, like I don't remember as a child having shame conversations or anything like that. And maybe, for example, there have been a couple of questions here about um, kids and next generation are you saying, you know, with the kids, it's not like don't gamble, but more educating kids on our brains are wired to do stuff and sometimes our brains can get addicted, but that's actually okay. If you do find that you're, you know, whether you're addicted to your game or your whatever, um, there's no shame in that because we're all just the same. Yeah, I think education is, is I'm a huge fan of it. If knowledge will change the brain. Knowledge applied will change it even more so. So if you're teaching your kids, look, this is what can happen when we engage in activities that are really stimulating. So video games, shopping, gambling. 
you know, age appropriate. You're not going to deliver this to a four-year-old. Yeah. Um, you're giving them some ammunition against what's coming. Mm. You know, we're bombarded with stimu- uh, stimulation from everywhere, phones, computers, iPads, it's everywhere. Mm. All right, so if anything, you're training them well. A final question, and then I'll open it to you to any um, finishing comments. At what point in the clinical setting would you need to refer someone on to psychiatry? Psychiatry goes hand in hand with psychology. So psychiatry really manages the psychiatric medications, right? Now, some psychiatrists will do psychology interventions as well, but for the most part, psychiatrists are going to diagnose and they're going to medicate, okay? In my personal view, I see that as having a place. Medications has a place, but it's kind of like taking Panadol for a broken arm. You also need a surgeon to come and reset that bone. Yeah. That's what a psychologist does. Yeah. That bone being broken, that's the analogy for beliefs that were developed in early life that were once adaptive, meaning they were true, are now no longer and they're causing you harm. Mm. An example being, if I come home every day from school and my mother is drunk, I have to develop a belief out of that. Okay, she won't meet my needs, but I can meet my own needs. So I become hyper-independent. So this belief system is driving me. Now, as an adult, you can see, all right, I might be starting with romantic relationships, but I'm hyper-independent because my belief is other people won't meet my needs. That's going to be harmful to forming a romantic attachment. Mm. Does that make sense? So, a little too close to home, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The the broken bone is the beliefs. And if you take inventory of your beliefs, what do I believe about myself? Am I worthy or am I worthless? Mm. Am I lovable or unlovable? Mm. Right? Other people. Are other people trustworthy? Will they hurt me? Will they abandon me? What about the world? Is the world dangerous? Is it calm? Is it friendly? Is it cruel? Take inventory of the beliefs that you have across those three subsystems, self, others, and the world, and then challenge them and modify them with experience, repeated experience. Mm. And you can get your way out of most things. And that's what a psychologist will do. Yeah. So it's not about the money. It's not about the gambling. There's always something else, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And it could be with the gambling, you know, full circle, you've found yourself addicted to this thing and you don't know why. Like it just started, it was innocent, but there could have been some underlying things and, you know, maybe... It's like randomly stumbling across something that soothed you to such a degree and you'd never felt that level of soothing before. Because that's what, like a pokey machine is designed to put you in a hypnotic state, mm. right? So you're in the zone, you're in the flow. I, I just think like the correlations with alcohol, it's so like, you know, you can have a couple of drinks a week and it doesn't run your life. But there are some people who have to drink multiple drinks every single day. Like it's, it's not actually the alcohol, it's not actually the poker machine, it's our own lived and life experience and the way we experience the world, the way we've made up chemically and how we react to things, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, I think this doesn't account for every addictive behaviour, mm. but for, for a lot, I would say, how do you soothe pain? Mm. So think about your own pain. How do I soothe pain? Is it adaptive and healthy or is it not? And that question there can really unlock some some home truths for a lot of people. And I know you've got to go, but like, what's the, and you can tell me anecdotally as well, and then I'll let you finish up, but like, 
physical health and mental health, is there more ways that you can fortify yourself from falling into these traps if you are uh, healthy physically and mm-hmm. mentally? And, not, you know, I'm not saying that being physically and mentally healthy makes all your problems go away, but like, so are there ways to fortify yourself mm-hmm. to stop any of these negative things coming at you? 100%. And I love this as a strategy, you know, like if we don't get our basics correct, it, we're going to find little blowouts that occur in our life. Mm. And the basics, the first thing, think um, you've got like the financial house. Yep. Use the same analogy. Yeah. The foundation of that house is sleep. Yes. What's your sleep like? Quality, depth, duration. Sleep is a huge issue for a lot of people. If they're anxious, they're ruminating at night and they can't fall asleep. You know, they've got stimulation in there, all sorts of things. Sleep is fundamental because sleep is like going to a psychologist every night. Mm. When you dream, you kind of you kind of get rid of all of this gunk from the day. When waking is kind of a little bit of brain damage. You get this plaque in the um, in the brain that builds up over the day. Sleeping washes that away. You learn things through dreams. Dreams is filing away important learnings and you process emotional events through dreams. If you drink, if you smoke weed, all these things, you're wiping out your REM cycle, which means you don't dream and you don't process emotions. You don't learn things, all this sort of stuff. So sleep is the foundation. Then we've got pillars, right? And those are exercise, right? So maintaining your preventative maintenance of your body right, is really, really helpful for strengthening mental health. Mm. You know, you're, you're getting wins on the board of achieving goals, et cetera, et cetera. So exercise, um, nutrition, really, really important. Eat good things, eat less bad things, right? Social, what's your social life like? Is it meaningful? Is it rich? A lot of people these days are quite isolated. Mm. They might have these kind of superficial social relationships, but to have a really rich, meaningful social life, two or three really good friends that you can share your pain with, that you can share your wins with, that is fundamental, mm. right? And then good mental health practices is kind of rounding out that house. And that would be, you know, journaling. That would be checking in with yourself. Oh, I'm being really anxious lately. What's going on? Mm. Let me do some mindfulness meditation. Let me do some controlled breathing. Or, you know what? I need to call my psychologist and have a check-in, mm. right? So all of these things... There's no one behavior that really buffers you against, you know, some mental illness, but it's the combination over time. So it's repeated that does it. Yeah. And that's the same type of analogy, you know, with the personal finances, just Mm. be working on all these micro habits, if you will, day in, day out in the trenches and you step back after a year and you probably had some good success. And likewise, we're focusing on all the things that you've talked about there's less chance of bad habits creeping in and becoming Mm. dependencies. Yeah, exactly. So you do those little things day in and day out. And it's the same with treating gambling. Mm. One day at a time, don't shoot for the moon. We're not looking at a year from now. We're looking at today, the next 10 minutes, the next hour. And is it a thing like some people would need to do a GA every week for the rest of their life? Maybe. Yeah. The thing about any um, gambling anonymous or alcohol anonymous or narcotics yeah. anonymous, those things are so powerful because they hit that third pillar of health, social. Social, yeah. yeah. And it's a shared experience of pain that you can be truly vulnerable with these people 
So you, vulnerability is the key to knowing someone inside and out. Mm. You got to share your vulnerability. And there's and absolutely no problem. shame in those groups either. No, it's none. You've got support when you feel an urge. You mm. call your sponsor. Like these are powerful, powerful organisations. Mm. And I know a lot of people kind of shy away because there's this concept of submitting to a higher power. Rethink it mm. because all of the rest is gold, mm. absolute gold. So you might need to go weekly. Some people can go to a psychologist four times and be good. Everyone's story is, is nuanced. Yeah, no worries. Well, Jono, thank you so much for jumping on and having a chat today. If you ever want to jump on and talk about anything to do with psychology that could be relevant to money at any time, just flick us an email and we'll have you on and we can put up questions in the group because... I think last time we had your episode, we had a lot of good feedback as well. So appreciate that. Well, I can talk about this forever, mate. Like it is uh, a very fixated interest of mine. So anytime, any any topic, I'm happy to come on and um, share what I know. Yeah, awesome. All right, friends. Thank you so much. We'll put some resources in the show notes, particularly around uh, Gambling Helpline and any other resources that um, may be relevant. Jono, our resident psychologist, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Glenn. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.